All right, so let me give you a couple of rules on, on my preaching. Um, there are rhetorical questions that I don't want you to respond to. And they are the ones that oftentimes involve confession of sin. So if I ask a, a sin confession question, it is always rhetorical. Do not yell out and confess your sin in public right yet. Uh, maybe there's a time and a place for that, not now. But there are questions that are not rhetorical, and they fall in the category almost of biblical trivia or doctrine or theology, and you can respond. And uh, there will be times when I'll say something and you all look like deer in the headlights, and I'll say these words. Just, just by chance, there has to be at, at least one knowledgeable Christian in the room. So whoever that one is, it can't always be Dr. Larson, it's got to be somebody else. You can answer the question. And I've already got a couple of kids who know what they're doing. So Juliana Sliman is fully, full-on prepared to respond in some way. So it is perfectly okay to respond. Um, and there are some times where I'll do this. I'll go, amen. And if you agree, what do you do? You say amen. All right. That, and that's, that, hey, listen, within polity and biblical, and biblical truth, you can do that. It's, you're free to do that. And you're also free to not do it. It's just going to be weirder if you don't. So um, anyway. Let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing. So we're doing a series called um, The Echoes of the Exodus, The Journey of the Church So Far. Now, just to give you a slight introduction to the series as a whole, why did I pick the Exodus? Is it me or does it sound like there's thunder rumbling behind me? Yes. That, that's like theophany, which is really cool, and it fits with the sermon, but I'm not sure what's happening, if we can fix that. So um, why are we doing Echoes of the Exodus? The Exodus is the story of God's people on journey with God to the promised land. Now, am I overstating where we're heading? Have I got grand designs on what, where this church is going to? Uh, no, I don't, actually, but I do know this, that all of the patterns in the Exodus are being played out in this church. And so, and, and that's not always just a one-to-one, -one, so I'm not suspecting some of you are going to build a golden calf at the end of the service, and we'll have a plague sweep through us. Let's not do that, so let's not measure it that way. But as I've heard about the history and what has gone on in this church and kind of where you guys are, I thought it would be really important to connect you to the Exodus story by way of encouragement. Because there's a lot of great things in the Exodus that I think we need to hear to be built up by, to be edified by, to be encouraged by. And so this morning's service, the entirety of the service, if you've been paying attention, is about God dwelling with his people. And so if you know anything about the whole sweep of the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, the whole point of the story is but one thing. And that one thing is for God to be able to dwell with his people so that his glory could pour out on them and they enjoy it unfettered forever and ever and ever. Amen. And that is a great truth about the story. There's a lot of things that we get tangled up in along the way, right? There's a lot of things that we kind of get lost in sometimes. There's some, some really interesting backwaters and hallways of the Bible that kind of sometimes take our gaze off of that. But it is critically important that again and again and again that we return to that is the fullness of God's will. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, I don't know what God's will is. Yes, you do. His will is for you to be able to dwell with him with your sin covered completely by the shed blood of Christ so that you can receive what it is you need from him in a time of need or you can celebrate with him as your Abba Father. What a wonderful and beautiful truth. But again, how often do we get pulled away from that truth? So it's, it's critical to me that we as a church, that's where we start. That we start in that reality. And this thing is killing me. Am I doing something wrong here? It's just me. I've got facial something going on. 
So, um, so it's really important that we as a church anchor ourselves first and foremost in the grandest redemptive reality that God longs to dwell with his people. Amen? That was a test. You guys passed. You did great. All right. So the, the main point of everything we're going to talk about this morning and all of the songs, all of the prayers, everything has been that God's purpose for the whole redemptive story to dwell with his people in glory. And so just to catch us up to where they are in the story of Exodus, since we're going to pick up in Exodus uh, chapter 13, 17 through 22, is remember that it is God who has personally delivered the nation of Israel and all who were willing to worship him. I love in Exodus chapter 3 when, when Moses encounters uh, God in the burning bush theophany. Now, for those of you who don't know, a theophany is just God manifesting himself in a tangible way in which he can be experienced by your senses, usually sight and sound. And so here God, uh, Moses encounters God, and God says these beautiful words. He says, I have heard the cry of my people, and I am personally going to come down to deliver them. What a beautiful truth that the creator of the universe, the one who could fill all that is, would personally hear the cry of his people and step into their existence and reality and deliver them himself. And it goes on where he begins to expose in Egypt that all of the false religion and false gods that Egypt had plague by plague, he takes them apart and deconstructs all that they believe in with the last plague being worse than the first, the death of the firstborn sons. Now why did he do that? Who was he deconstructing there? He was proving that Pharaoh, who claimed to be God, was no, no God at all. And he couldn't stop anything that God willed and intended to do. And so plague by plague, God is showing not only his own people that he loves them, but in the book of Isaiah, you find a very interesting passage where God says, I did it because I loved the Egyptians as well. And if you know anything about the Exodus, there are a number of Egyptians, we don't know how many, who were included in the Exodus and became the people of God. So then he goes on um, and he tells them that the whole reason that he has done this, that he's calling them out of Egypt is not just to set them free to do whatever they want, right? Because that would be chaos. Because the people of Israel had shown when given freedom to do whatever they want, what do they do with it? Just like you and I do. We go crazy. We don't know what to do with it. It's like being a freshman for the first time away at college. You kind of lose your mind for a bit until you can find your feet again. And so, so the freedom that they were granted was not for them to do whatever they wanted. They were, as Exodus 19 very clearly states, to become a royal kingdom of priests. Well, that's an interesting term. Why would the entire nation need to become a kingdom of priests? So they could minister to each other? No. So that they could minister to the nations. In the New Testament, this language is picked up again in, in Peter's. He says, you are called out to be a royal priesthood, a people set apart for the purpose of God. So we, the church, continue in this lineage. The freedom that we've been given in Christ is granted to us, not for us to do whatever we want with it but instead to actually worship the Lord our God in the way that he's called us to do it, which is actually true freedom, and to serve his purpose to make him known among the nations. That is God's entire desire. And if you remember, even in Genesis chapter 1, when he is telling Adam and Eve what their mandate is, what did he say that they were to do? They were to fill the earth with something, right? His glory. Has that ever changed? Has the mission of God ever changed? Did the fall change the mission of God? No, 
It didn't. In fact, that shows us just how sovereign and powerful our God is, that when darkness swept into the world, that it could not keep the light from shining forth. Amen? And amen. That's good news, isn't it? And so we have to ask the same questions that the Egyptians had to ask as they were leaving Egypt, and that is, do you fully recognize what it is you're being saved from? Because if you don't know what you're being saved from, it doesn't necessarily bode well for you to be able to worship in full spirit and truth. So what you're being saved from is sin and death. Now, for some of you, that doesn't move you a whole lot, right? I mean, you, you're, you've looked at you, and you're a pretty good person. You don't do that many bad things. And so the threat of sin and death to you is not that large. But the other threat to you that you may want to consider is the threat of utter meaninglessness in this life. What would be the point of this life at all if there is no true redemptive story, if we're not moving and arcing towards somewhere, if the neo-atheists turn out to be right and there's infinite nothing at the end of all this, man, I'm, I'm going to ask for my money back. I don't know about you. And so, so meaninglessness, you must understand, is as great a threat for some of you as is the threat of sin and death. Now, I'm not trying to minimize sin and death. I'm just saying that, say, for someone like my wife, who has known Jesus all the days of her life and has, has sinned and known she has sinned, but, but that whole concept of her being atrocious, dirty, filthy, rotten, stinking sinner, that didn't necessarily move her a whole lot. I get it in spades because of the things that I have done. So I recognize that there's two groups of us here this morning that sometimes you need to understand that sin and death is not the only and not the worst sometimes. Meaningless can be even worse. So we are being saved from sin and death and having to pay for our own sin and also the meaninglessness that comes from life. How many of you have asked questions like this? Why? Well, that's a question of meaningfulness or meaninglessness depending on how you answer the question, right? And so the great answer to the question why is redemption. The great answer to the question why is to dwell with God our Father in spirit and in truth and to be able to do so in true freedom, not bound. And do we know also, having said that, what we are being redeemed to? Do we recognize the fullness of the gift of God's presence? Because I think that sometimes... That's where we kind of run aground, don't we? Because uh, some, well, I was talking with some friends last night, and the, the bottom line is so often our church experience is not very meaningful. I mean, it, it's difficult to actually walk away sometimes from church and say, man, I'm really glad I got up and did all that stuff this morning. And my hope for us as people is that we would seek to shift away from a consumer mentality and recognize fully what is happening here this morning, not because I'm here, but because God is here in our midst, amen? That God would condescend to us, his people, and grant us, but even for a moment, a glimpse of his glory through his word, sung, prayed, preached, and read. So what a beautiful thing that we need to fully begin to recognize is that the, the, the real Summum bonum, for those of you who know that term, the highest good is to be in relationship and be present with the Lord our God. And so that is critically important for us to meditate on. And I love the way Michael D. Williams in the book, Far as the Curse is Found, it's a book on biblical theology. He says, redemption, the Exodus shows, is a coming out and a going in. A coming out of the bondage of sin and a going into the family and the presence of God. 
So it's critical that we all understand that you've been set free, but not for yourself. You've been bought with a price in Christ Jesus, and you have a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify the Lord your God amongst the family of God. You, there are no, it's just Jesus and me types. That doesn't work. It never works. It never has worked in the history of the world, and it won't work just because you try it. And so it's really important that we recognize we're being called into both family and into the presence of God to serve his mission. And just to put a New Testament spin on that, let's look at Romans 6, 20 through 23 for just a moment and hear how this is, is really brought forward into the New Testament. If you would hear God's word this morning. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and is its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, the New Testament writer Paul is telling us very clearly that you were once a slave to sin, and now you have become a slave unto God. Maybe you don't like that language. Maybe you're thoroughly Western and autonomous and rise above such language of slavery, but that's the gospel. That's, that's the gospel language. And, and praise be to God that we get to be a slave of someone who cares for us as opposed to a slave of someone who's destroying us. So that is the backdrop of the Exodus story as we step into the text from Exodus 13, 17 through 18. Let's look at God's word again together this morning. And it helps us to understand what they've been delivered from and what they're being delivered to. It says this, hear God's word again this morning. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I want us to notice straight away, again, who's leading them? Moses? It's not what the text says. Now Moses serves as the man who stands as mediator at this juncture in redemptive history. But it is God himself who has determined their path. Now why is that important for us here at Christ Community Church? Help me for just a second. What's been the path of the last almost 14 years? Set up, tear down. Set up, tear down. In permanent structure, we have no permanent space. We do have a nice office space, but you can only do so much there. It's tough to connect because we don't have much in the way of programs outside of a building. And so it's been a bit of feeling like we've been wandering, yes? And it has been difficult because I have done set up and tear down for three years and was so weary I couldn't see straight. I can't even imagine those of you who have been doing it for 13 years. And all of my church planting friends have never heard of a church that sets up and tears down for 13 years. Now let me ask you this. Is God's point to destroy you? Absolutely not. He has called you together for a purpose. Help me out. What is your purpose? To glorify God but to glorify God most by Him being in your midst, in your presence. Now, is God more in your midst and presence in the, in the major uh, temple, or is He just as close to you in the moving tabernacle? According to God's Word, He's present in both places. And that is the highest good, and that is what is most important, and that is what can give you the energy to carry on, because when God declares something Ichabod, tell me, how long does it last? 
It goes quickly up like a flame. So God is not punishing you all by making you set up and tear down. The truth of the matter is we get the opportunity to serve God in this way. Amen? And so we get the opportunity to set up and tear down so that we can hear God's word and gather together as God's people. And so while it has been a tough journey, and God's going to lead them a way that is not easy, right? He's not taking them by way of the Philistines. If you know anything about the Philistines, how much do they like God's people? They like to kill them, actually, and they want to see them destroyed. So God is recognizing that the way that they would go naturally, the way that is the path of supposed least resistance will be the thing that would destroy the people's hearts. And so God, in his great sovereignty, has said, no, I don't want you to go that way. I want you to go this way. Even though this way is a desert wilderness, and you're going to long for food, and you're going to long for water, and you're going to wander for some years. It is the best way for you to go so that you would come to know me in full. So might we uh, recognize very humbly that the history of Christ Community Church is well within the sovereign will of the Lord our God who said, I want you to go this way. Now you may say, well, maybe some of those leaders, those sap suckers, have made some bad decisions and they're causing us to... Well, let me ask you, if you know anything about the Exodus story, was there a leader who made a bad decision in the Exodus story? When Moses disappeared into the cloud and was receiving the law of the Lord, what happened? What did Aaron, the guy who was supposed to be in charge, do very quickly? He said, I'll do what it is you people want to do and what the people want. They wanted something they could see, something they could control. And they said, make, and this is interesting, it's in the plural, they say, make God's for us to follow. And so they threw all their stuff in the fire and out came a bull, which is significant, and I won't get into all that right now, but it's important that we recognize that they messed up too. And did God's glory depart from them? Well, hold on, we're going to find out. The truth of the matter is, no, it didn't. He continued to dwell with his people because their sin was not going to dictate what he did and did not do. Although they did have to pay for it, there was a moment of judgment in which a plague swept through the people, but it didn't kill them all. And so it's really important for us to also recognize that though you could make an argument, and I'm not making that argument, by the way, that maybe some mistakes were made, but if you want to make that argument, I would say to you, but that's not where you need to fix your gaze. You need to fix your gaze on God who dwells in the midst of his people even even when they make terrible mistakes. Amen? And praise be to God that he does that, because I make them all the time, as it turns out. And so here, God has called his people, and you need to know how many of them there were. There was about 2.5 million of them. Have you ever tried to move 2.5 million people? I mean, have you ever even tried to, for those of you who are teachers, how easy is it to move a class of 25 from point A to point B and not lose six of them? Right? And so think about trying to get 2.5 million people who've just been set free and want to go their own way. Trying to get that many people to do anything. Let's see how he did it. Look at verse 18. It says, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them 
by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now notice how beautiful this text is in the sense that here God is, is organized them. When it says that they were equipped for battle, that's actually not the best translation. Um, it is actually saying that they were more organized in military fashion. If you've got 2.5 million people and you're having to move them, uh, you got to get them organized. And so they would get them in large groups in military fashion. If they were so ready to fight, why didn't they just go by way of the Philistines? Well, they weren't, were they? And so God has organized them. He's taken the chaos of this freed people and brought it together, which is instructive for us. And then Moses recognizes that God, in being present with the people, is fulfilling Genesis chapter 50, verses 25 and 26, which is interesting that that's how the book of Genesis ends, with Joseph saying, once I die, make sure that my bones go with you, because the Lord God is going to visit you. And what he's saying is, I want even my bones to be present with the Lord. And so the book of Genesis closes with that promise, that the Lord God is going to visit his people. And so the Lord God does, in fact, prove himself to be faithful as he has come down and has visited and has set free and is now leading his people in this pillar. Now, you got to understand, if you got 2.5 million people, how tall must the pillar be in order for everybody to see it? It's got to be pretty tall, and also it's got to cover them. As it says in the Psalms, it says it covers them. So you're talking about at the base that this pillar more than likely would have been about 12 miles square. So if it's 12 miles square at the base, and that's just a supposition, given our understanding of how much space 2.5 million people would take up, if it's that much at the base, how tall would this beautiful theophany, this presence of the Lord have to be where everybody could see it no matter where they were? Think about that he's caring even for the children. How tall must a child be to be able to see this? That was not what was important was how tall the child was, how tall the pillar. That the pillar would be tall enough for everyone to see and everyone to know exactly where they were going. So, for us here at Christ Community Church, has God not made himself known to you? Has God not been very clear about how much he loves you? Has God not made it very clear and evident to all who will see how much he has held this church together? Just look around. How many, how many storms has this church weathered? How many things has it made its way through? And yet, Christ in his sovereignty and in his grace still holds you together. What an encouragement to us all. Amen? Because otherwise, if it was left to us, we would be practical and we would look at things and we would look at budgets and we would look at circumstances and we would say, I think we're better off doing something else. But that ain't what was determined, and God clearly hadn't said do that. And so we're seeking to follow him and stay looking forward to his presence and how he will continue to evidence how much he loves us as he journeys with us and he leads us, which, which is very good news for us. So as he leads them through the rest of this story, they find themselves in different difficult circumstances where they don't think they have enough water. And so they ask Moses, hey, did, were there not enough graves in Egypt? 
and they don't like the food, they don't like any of the stuff that's kind of going on, and they're just complaining and whining, and then they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, which is where God is going to reveal to them the law. And here's what's beautiful about the law. The law, if you understand, just even looking at the Ten Commandments in miniature, the first four commandments are about how we, to, how we are to approach God, how we are to relate with God. And the other six commandments about, are about how we are to relate to each other, which is the two greatest commandments of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So even in the law, the Lord is trying to give them the means by which they as sinners can approach him. They as sinners can, can worship together in spirit and truth. And so the law was a good thing in essence at that time. Now it became a tutor and it became the means by which we would recognize just how sinful we were, which is an even better truth, so that we would run full on to Christ who draws us near to himself to elect us children of God. And so the law has always ultimately been about how we are to be able to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And yet, they grew tired and weary and decided to make that golden calf. And there was a curse that came through. And then God told them how to, to build a dwelling place where he could be in their midst. It was the movable tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle itself would journey with the people so that they would always know where he was. They would always be able to find him. And let's pick it up at the end of the story. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. And I love that this is how the book of Exodus ends. You know, you think about how Genesis ended with the promise that the Lord would visit his people. The book of Exodus ends essentially with the Lord in full-on visitation of his people. And it's telling us where the story ultimately is going, right? It's giving us this grand sweep of, of the redemptive story. And I just find that it's, it's beautiful that it's, it's held together that way. Hear God's word again this morning. 40 verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Let me pause right there for a second. Isn't that interesting that Moses could not enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord filled it? I mean, remember, what did Moses ask God to show him? Let me see your glory. And God said, no, it would destroy you, but I will give you a glimpse of my backside glory. And what did it do? It made Moses' face shine like the sun and freaked everybody out, right? And so you guys would freak out if my face suddenly just lit up a glow. And so, so it was, but it let them know where he had been and what he was filled with. But why can't Moses go into the tabernacle? What comment is being made here? Well, what God is saying is that Moses is an insufficient mediator long term. He cannot be the way by which you will be able to come before me forever for eternity. So right here we're seeing a pointing forward to a greater mediator to come. That Moses could not go before God as the one who is perfect could. As Christ who could come from before the throne and come and say, I have heard directly from the Father, which means that he has seen God and lived which if you've read the Gospel of John, you know makes the Jews very, very angry that he would say, I as a man have seen God and lived. And I'm here to tell you about it. And so we see that the, the sinfulness and the brokenness of man will ever be insufficient to be able to go before the Lord our God. But listen to what else it says. It goes on, picking up in verse 36. It says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Again, God's desire, God's promise was to be with his people. And he is fulfilling this promise as, as, as he moves, they move. Now, what does that mean for us here at Christ Community Church as, as leaders? That means that we want to be sensitive to where is the Lord leading, not where are we wanting to go. Right? I mean, we want to be sensitive and prayerful and humble and ever before the throne of grace, asking God, what would you have us to be and do as your church? Where would you have us to go? And that's what you would want from us as leaders, is that we would be most dependent on and sensitive to what is the Lord doing? Where is he going? What is he wanting uniquely for us as a body here, here at Christ Community? And you too should desire that, and you should pray for us in that regard, right? That we would be men so sensitive to the movement of the Lord and so fixed as our gaze upon him and where he is moving that we will lead you not further into the wilderness to wander and, and, and not receive what it is that the Lord has for us. So is the goal for Christ Community Church to get into a building? Trick question. Well, kind of. All right? Kind of. Yes, we want to get into a more permanent space, but why? So we can suddenly go, man, I don't have to pick up chairs anymore. My service ministry is done. We've made it. The promised land. Milk and honey for everybody. No. Why would God allow us to get into a more permanent space? So that we would better worship and dwell with him and serve as the royal priesthood that we have been called to be in terms of reaching our community for the name of Christ and the fame of Christ and the glory of our God. The building is a tool, just like this space is a tool, just like the office that we currently have is but a tool. And so we need to make sure that we are not thinking that the end of the story is to get into a permanent space and then finally, finally, the story has a period on the end of the sentence. No, in fact, it will probably get even harder in some respects, hopefully. I know that sounds weird, right? But harder in the sense that we are drawing people in whose lives are messy and who desperately need Jesus and recognize that we are the royal priesthood and that we are able to minister to the needs that they have. Amen? So that should be all of our desire, but knowing that no matter where we are, as the people of God, God is always and ever with us. Even when we don't see him, he is there. I think about my own journey in Christ, um, and, and as I look back at the times in my life when I was so far from God, and I hated him, and I hated everything about him, and I hated myself, and I was trying to destroy myself, I remember very specifically there was this voice, and I didn't need to take medication, so don't think that that was the issue, but there was this still small voice that used to say this one thing, hang on. And I, it was so compelling that I hung on, and then as I became a Christian, I recognized as I looked back that the Lord was always there. And there were so many times that I would have not have given him credit for it, but he saved me uh, temporally only to preserve me for eternity. And it's a beautiful thing if you were to take the time today, as today is the Lord's day, and even in the days ahead, to just stop for a moment and look back and say to the Holy Spirit, show me, Lord, where you have been present over the whole of my life, and let me rejoice at all of the places where you intersected, uh, and I didn't even know you were there. 
And how often are we guilty of not being able to, in the mundaneness of life, recognize that God is good and He's present? How many of you, when you woke up this morning, said to your lungs, all right, here's the chemical equation. In order for us to work and us to make it, you're going to have to exchange O2, CO2, and we got to do this thing, right? Your bronchioles, is everybody on board? Is that what you woke up and did? You biochemistry experiment that you are? No, you didn't. It just works, doesn't it? Now, for some of you, you may say, well, it doesn't work as good as it ought to. Well, I understand. It is, we are fallen after all. But you didn't decide to breathe, and so how much should we just, even in that moment, say, Lord, thank you for the gift of another day. May this day restore to me the joy of my salvation. Are we just afraid to pray those things? Do we think that that's hokey? No, that's worship. And so in understanding this, John Currid said it this way. I love the way he puts this. He says, our reward is God's presence with us no matter what our external circumstances Um, And W. Ross Blackburn says it this way, the presence of the Lord with his people is not simply the means of the mission, but is itself the mission. Let me say that again. The presence of the Lord with his people is not simply the means of the mission. It is, in fact, itself the mission. So the mission of God is to dwell with his people. And so we want to start right from the outside by recognizing that we as a church, Christ Community Church, the thing that I'm going to try to point you to often is that God is in our midst and he is working and he is dwelling among us. That's why we do the, the, the video that we did at the beginning is to evidence that God is in our midst and he is working. Amen? What a beautiful truth that that is to us. So what do we do with this? How, how, do, we, how do we apply this? Well... How should this affect our daily reality? And and in your bulletin, I'm not going to read all those verses for you. They're there for you to go and study as you look at each of the aspects of the things I'm going to bring up. But here's some ways in which you can apply it. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, duh. Well, then I'm going to say back to you, but are you doing it? Is this, where, is this the ground in which you're always battling, right? You know, the, the great, we were talking about this the other day, that accountability groups have really fallen on hard times. That's a dirty word, right, accountability groups. I don't know about in the PCA, but in the tradition that I came out of, it, you, no, you didn't do accountability groups. And you never ask anybody if they were praying, and you never ask anybody if they were reading their Bible because you were just beating them up, and that's not grace. Huh, well, that's interesting. Um, given that the way in which we are to dwell in the presence of the Lord, very simply, are these things. One is corporate worship. God loves to gather with his people. How many people are required in order for God to be there? How many? Two or three, and I think, it, I don't know about the 2.5, we can't shoot for the middle, but I don't know about you, but by my count, we've exceeded the maximum. What does that mean? That means that God is here with us. Whether you feel him today or not, or you see him in retrospect, or you feel anything at all. If you're saying to me, Cameron, I don't feel anything at all, so I don't think he's here, well, I would push back on you and say, well, maybe you need to ask some better questions. Because there's a reality that sometimes our questions are bad, right? And we don't want to admit that. We think we have this full-on autonomy. We can ask whatever we want or say whatever we want. No, you can't, actually. But, but most importantly is when we gather together as God's people, this is why what we're doing here is so important to us. Yes, I understand that it's a wearying process to make this happen, but look at what we get as the reward every single Sunday. How gracious was God to provide you all, Dr. Sam Larson, to stand in the gap. That's not to lift him up, but he is a willing servant. The Lord provided Sam so that you would not forget that he was in your 
The other way that we do it is prayer. Now, prayer is where we humbly come before the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says that Christ did what he did to fling wide the gates or fling wide the curtain or the veil so that we could run to the throne of grace and receive what we need when? In a time of trouble. That is where we get to dwell with God is in the moments where we humbly pray and go before him. So how many of you, the hardest thing that you try to do is prayer? Why do you think it's hard? Well, C.S. Lewis says it must be something good if it's hard. And he recognized that, you know, if it's hard to do, then it must be something we should strive to do. And so we as a people, I want for our church to become known for being a praying people and praying for each other and not just thinking that I, the pastor, am the only one who can pray for you. No, any saint in this room can pray for any other saint. And let me say this. Do you know how many people, this being my first Sunday, actually stopped me and prayed with me for this morning? Now, this is not an indictment. I'm not trying to make everybody... None. we got to change that culture. Is this not important? Is this not meaningful? Is, this not gra- is, there, is there no gravity to what I'm doing up here? So it's important that we become a church that prays for one another and recognizes. we got many people in our church that are suffering a number of different things that are kind of long-term illness type things. And I know they get tired of asking for prayer because they don't want to wear each other out. But we need to be a church that knows that anytime we need it, we can come to each other and we will boldly go before the throne of grace because of who Christ is and what he has done. How radically would we change if we became those kinds of Christians who understood that to dwell before God was the single greatest thing, even though prayer sometimes just feels weird. And the other place that we get to engage God is in our time where we engage the scriptures themselves. Remember what Christ said about himself in John 1. He said, I am the word. Why do you think that's significant? And the Word became flesh. Why? To tabernacle or dwell among the people. So Christ became the Word incarnate. So when we take time to go into the Word, whatever that may look like, whether it's Bible study, one-on-one devotion, I don't care how you do it, where you do it, whatever way you do it, every time that you engage God's Word, you are stepping into His presence. And I don't think I could say that strongly enough, but we, we need not be a people who are like, oh, Bible reading, oh. No, you get to go before the Lord. And my hope, certainly as we study Exodus over the next few weeks, is that that will become a book that you, you can study and, it, and mine its riches. Though we can't preach through every verse here because we'd be there for a long, long time. We would feel like we were wandering in the wilderness. And so those three things, corporate worship, prayer, And engaging in God's Word are three very clear ways in which we are able to come into the presence of the Lord and know that He is faithful to always be there. Amen? It seems so simple. It's it's like, why why is that the three things we wrestle with the most? Well, because you're not glorified yet, and that should help you recognize the gravity of what those things are. It wouldn't be hard. Satan wouldn't fight you on it if it was something that wasn't going to carry you where you needed to go. So those need to, and I'm not saying those things from a legalistic perspective. No, my hope is that you'll do it out of delight. But there are going to be some days where you're not going to delight and you need to do it out of duty. Because you know that that is where the fount is located. I can't tell you how many times myself I've thought, and I'm the preacher. I don't really want to get up and do this this morning. But doing it, the Lord showed up in a mighty way and took away all of those emotions and those things from me in such a way that beautifully showed me his presence. And so I commend the same to you. 
So, as we close out this morning, I love, and this is not George Bush, either senior or W. Uh, this is George Bush from the 19th century who wrote a commentary on Exodus. He says this, and I love this quote. He says, the Bible is our pillar of cloud, of cloud and of fire. So the Bible is what shows us who God is, where he is calling us to go. It is our direction. It is the thing that we need to make sure that we keep as the orienting, uh, the, the means of grace that orients us in the way that we are going. Amen? That's why we're going to preach the scriptures. We're going to pray the scriptures. We're going to saturate our time with the scriptures. So all that being said, if you would, let's turn to Revelation chapter 21 and look at the end of this story. <coughs> Now, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're thinking, I don't believe any of this stuff. I just came because I heard there was some Ziggler's barbecue afterwards. Well, you're welcome before you eat it, by the way. But I do want to challenge you in saying that the Lord um, has brought you here and that this is him speaking to you. Listen to how the story ends. And I can't imagine that any of you who don't currently know Christ would say, I don't really think that's a good end. I don't really think that's where we should be going. So I want you to hear these words and ask yourself the question, how are you going to get, if this is a good end, how else are you going to get here if not by Christ? Revelation 21, hear God's word this morning again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Who among you has the courage to say, I don't want any of that? I don't want for pain to pass away. I don't want for there to be a last funeral. I don't want for tears to be wiped away. No, I want it to all burn. Well, none of us has the courage really to say that, now do we? And yet we are given a vision for something even greater that is only possible as we dwell with and recognize the presence of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray as we close out. The band's going to come up and we're going to have a, a, some time of uh, additional worship for you to kind of meditate on these things and think through these things. And if you're struggling with something and you need to pray with one of the elders, they will be in the back corner. If you have a mercy need again, we want to make sure that if you need to be ministered to, we are here for you. And, and not that that back corner is necessarily only where the presence is, but that's where they're going to be. And so uh, if you would, make your way back there as you see fit and have a need. If there's anything that I can do for you, I'll be up more toward the front. And if you'd like to come talk to me, and if there's anything I can do for you in terms of, of walking through some of this stuff, please, by all means, I'm here for you. I am a servant uh, to help you understand better God's desire to dwell with you. So as I pray, um, be considering those things. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you want to be with us. God, I, I just can't help but think time and time again of how blessed it is for us to have and know that we are loved and cared for, and not just loved and cared for, but desired, that, that you would want to be with us, and that you, in your great mercy and your great 
infinite wisdom provided Christ as the means by which we could dwell with you forever. God, help us between the now and the not yet to better understand, better experience, and better enjoy your presence with us, your people. Help us to do that. Teach us to pray as you did in Scripture. Teach us to long for the Word as you said that, and, and helped us to understand that it is the fullness of what we need to understand our salvation and be saved and to also be built up and grow up and be mature. And God, help us to also just enjoy gathering together as your people. Help it to be not a lifeless exercise, but filled with your glory as you filled the temple. And God, help us to remember that we cannot save ourselves. That just as Moses could not enter the temple, nor can we in and of ourselves. We need a mediator, and that mediator is Christ. So God, thank you for, again for your provision and your love. In Christ's name, amen.